of the Holy Gospel according to St. John, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, Lord. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up and take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Despite my school's best efforts to convert me to being right-handed, I remain left-handed. I guess I should say they partially succeeded in that I paint with my right hand, and if I ever were so inclined to do so, I would throw a ball with my right hand. However, as a true left-handed person, I always begin to flip through magazines at the end, at the back. I was elated when I went to college and I learned some Japanese, which reads top to bottom and then right to left, right to left from where you're sitting. And then I went to seminary and learned Hebrew, which reads right to left, starting at the back of the book and ending at the front. So I guess this would be the front, right, of the Hebrew Bible, and you would open and work through it that way, which I loved. That made sense to me. I was also able to write both of these languages without smearing the words, right? Because as a left-handed person, as you go over your words, lots of nodding heads, you smear all the things that you write. In both cases, though, I felt relieved to have found languages which followed my tendency to begin at the end. I also eat pizza backwards, starting with the crust, but I don't think that has anything to do with being right or left-handed. I think that's just something weird that I do. But these are a few examples of how some things do, in fact, begin at the end. What happens maybe to look like it's the end of the book might, in fact, be the beginning of the book. So I'm fascinated by this idea of let's begin at the end. When I Google searched this phrase, let's begin at the end, I found that there are ballets and books of similar titles, engaging topics such as death and divorce. It also called to mind a movie that I watched back in 2006 called The Pursuit of Happiness, starring Will Smith. It's a, based on a true story, actually, of a father and his five-year-old son who are homeless. The father fights to keep them alive on the streets of New York. The movie ends with an astonishing new beginning when the father begins his own multi-million dollar brokerage firm. I am sorry for the spoiler, but the movie's from 2006. If you haven't seen it by now, that's not on me. There's also the added ironic twist that Smith himself is now needing to invent a new beginning after being canceled in Hollywood due to his famous slap in the face of Chris Rock during the Oscars this year. Smith certainly is not alone 
in needing to carve out a new, a new future for himself due to an action, a word, or a phrase. We see this a lot in the world, right? Chef Paula Dean, remember her? Golfer Phil Mickelson. Uh, heck, even musician Eric Clapton are a few examples of people who are creating new futures based on words that ended the careers as they knew them. Oftentimes, endings are just new beginnings. The idea of beginning at the end does not only apply to languages which read back to front, or ballets and books which engage human drama, or new careers after an action or a word ends life as it once was. Let's begin at the end. Well suits our engagement with today's texts from the Bible, I believe. Our first reading begins at the end of Jesus' physical ministry here on earth. The disciples are piecing together what it means for them to spread the gospel of Jesus at the risk of public execution like Jesus. So they venture outside the city to pray, and they encounter women whom they engage in dialogue. They go on to baptize one woman and her whole family. She becomes one of their main financial supporters and invites them into her house. All of these things challenge the existing rules of society, planting the seeds of Christian faith in the heart of Roman-occupied territory, engaging in public dialogue with women, baptizing in the name of a crucified king. As Jesus' physical ministry on earth ends with his ascension into heaven, the disciples face a new beginning. They engage this boldly, even at the risk of offending empire power. The end of Jesus' physical presence ushers in a new beginning of apostolic ministry. The reading from Revelation describes an end to life on earth as we know it, and a beginning the new reign of God when all things are made new. In this new reign, there's an ending of the old things. There's no more day, no more night, no more tears or suffering, no more accursed people or things. God is the light of all people. And even as the days of old, marked by war and disease and death and sorrow, pass away, a new kingdom day dawns. The old world passes away and a new world begins. And then the gospel, which I read for you from John chapter 5, describes a man who cannot walk. He sits all day and night out under one of the porticos of the sheep's gate, gazing at a pool of healing which he cannot enter because he cannot walk to it. And even if he could, the crowds press in so thick he could never reach it anyway. Yet Jesus sees this man and asks him if he wants to be healed. The man answers, yes, but I can't do this alone. Jesus heals the man, and the gospel ends with the words, now that day was a Sabbath. And that's the point. While those words are at the end of this gospel story, they are in fact the beginning of the story. The most important sentence in this gospel is that last one. Now that day was a Sabbath. That's where everything begins. When you see that sentence, you know that you're in for a ride. Because you know that Jesus has done something that has broken the rules. Something that reverses the present order of things. Something that offends people with power. It means whatever Jesus just did triggers the beginning of a whole bunch of things like confusion, 
and anger and offense. But what's the crime here? What's the big deal if Jesus heals some lame guy on the Sabbath? The crime is that the empire depends on insiders and outsiders. It feeds on this system of powerful and powerless. It depends on people being divided from each other by class. Empire always despises community because community is strong, whereas a ragtag group of individuals is not. We saw that often, for example, in our former presidential administration, easy to control divided people. Because if they're distracted by fighting each other, empire can do whatever it wants, like try to buy Greenland, for example. But I digress. Anyway, in the gospel, the Roman Empire and the Jewish authorities at that time need that man to stay put, to stay in his caste, to fulfill his role as outsider. If he maintains this role of being nothing but a poor beggar, that frees up more resources for the rich to snatch up. The minute the situation becomes a threat to empire is when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man says, yeah, but I can't do it alone. The man is healed, yes, but he is then restored to community, thereby upsetting the current structure of society. He's breaking rank. The last is becoming first. The outsider is becoming an insider. Structures of power are being turned on their heads. His being restored to community makes community one person stronger. And this poses a threat to power. While I maintain that every good story in the Bible contains the words, now that day was a Sabbath, let's be clear, Jesus doesn't do offensive things just to do offensive things. He doesn't wake up each morning and wonder to himself, hey, how can I piss off the Romans and the Pharisees today? No, he offends them by doing good, by loving the unlovable, by welcoming people into community who have been driven out, by preaching about his kingdom where none are cursed or oppressed or crushed. This challenges existing power structures then and now. And that's what offends empire. But this doesn't happen alone. Jesus doesn't work alone. Jesus has people. Seniors, who has left and is driving back to Marlene. As you venture off into paths unknown, remember you can't do this alone. Our seniors can't as they take their next step. As you move from an end of high school career and move into a new beginning, you need your people. That man in Macedonia needs Paul, and Paul needs Lydia. The lame man by the pool needs Jesus for healing. Jesus needs that man to show the world exactly why he came. As things end and begin, we all need people. State track was this week for Christian. Mason also ran. He did a great job. Ending six years of junior and senior high track and cross country for him. His 4 by 8 relay won seventh place in state, earning them a medal and a team PR. Watching them work this season to make Drake and state helps me understand how endings and beginnings go hand in hand, in this case, quite literally. 
In relays such as the 4x8, each leg runs his fastest, sometimes earning a personal record, sometimes struggling before he hands the baton off to the next runner. At Drake, the same four boys didn't fare as well because one of them decided that eating gas station sushi the night before was a good choice. I've never been an athlete, but I've been fascinated watching them run each leg until they literally have nothing left, often even falling down as they cross the finish line after handing the baton off to the next boy's hand, who then begins the next leg. One leg's ending is the next leg's beginning. You can't run a relay alone. And what is human existence if not a relay? And isn't that what we're really doing in life when it comes to endings? and beginnings, to try our very best. And when we've given it everything we've got, to pass it along to the next waiting hand who carries it further, whether that be an idea, a story, a memory, or a tradition. And in this way, do we not keep each other alive in community? None of us can do this alone. Not Paul, not Lydia, not her household, not the lame man, not even Jesus. The Macedonian man hands the baton to Paul who passes it on to Lydia. Jesus hands the baton to the lame man, who in turn hands it to the first person who sees him and says, how is it that you're walking? And the man says, let me tell you about this Jesus. As one leg ends, the next begins hand to hand, and the story is passed on from one mouth to the next. Christian's graduation party was last Sunday. That evening, while we were opening cards and he was counting his money, I was surprised to notice him crying suddenly, which is not like him at all. It turns out his aunt had given him a graduation card, and in it was a picture of his grandma Connie holding Christian as a newborn. Connie developed Alzheimer's years ago and died in March of 2021. The boys have no active memories of her intense involvement in their early years. But when I was exhausted, when they were babies, and had reached my wit's end, I would call her, and she would come for weeks, patrolling the parsonage door like a school principal, arranging casseroles in my fridge with Tetris-like precision, rocking the boys and walking them, and singing to them her beloved sweet Adeline tunes, in her smooth alto voice. Connie was the one I handed my mother's baton to when I had nothing left to give. Anyway, the card was in his aunt's handwriting, and it said, your grandma bought this graduation card for you when you were little, long before she got sick. I found it tucked inside a box with this photo, and I'm passing it on to you. So Christian picks up the baton of Grandma Connie's life, a baton of profound love, inexhaustible kindness, infinite patience, and carries it with him into his new beginning at Luther, where I hope he tapes that picture to his mirror or dorm fridge so that he can remember whose baton he has picked up and feel the honor of carrying it into his new beginning he carries the baton of a life he barely remembers, but one which cradled him and shaped him and kissed him when he cried. To pass such batons from one generation to the next 
as they end and begin is to participate in the relay of human existence. It means an end is always a new beginning. And in that precarious moment when baton is passed from hand to hand is where hope is born. From each ending comes a new beginning. Doug entered my life exactly when I was unable to see any new beginnings for myself. From the endings of former things for me came many new beginnings. A new city, new home, new school for the boys, new job here with you, new businesses for Doug. Brides often cry on their wedding day and they feel guilty about it until I tell them that while their married life is beginning, there is also an ending, a tearing away from childhood or singlehood that causes sadness and pain. All of life is a handing off of a baton where one ending becomes the beginning of the next leg. The only variable is what will you do with your leg of the race? The miracle of healing in this gospel is that the man is restored to community. He no longer sits alone watching other people participate in life. His days as an observer and an onlooker are over. He's suddenly smack dab in the thick of it, in the middle of swirling waters and clamoring voices. He's surrounded by mouths moving, hands waving, children crying, no longer on the sidelines. He's in the middle of life now. Don't think for a minute that he will ever walk by another lame person without stopping to ask him if he wants to be healed. And when that person says yes, he will say, wait here, I know a guy. And then that person will be restored, brought back into community, and the next person, and so on, until everyone's in the pool and it's full, and all of the endings are Done. And the beginnings are beginning. Jesus has just passed the baton to that man for him to run his leg of the race, and I bet he ran it well. There is work here to do. As Pride Month and Juneteenth approach, our congregation has pledged to connect with the LGBTQIA and black communities whom we have harmed and have pledged to work to restore them to community and to celebrate who they are as created children of God. In becoming a Reconciling in Christ congregation, we have vowed to pick up the baton and run with it, even in ways that might be offensive to some. So keep your eyes open for sign-up geniuses, for the Pride Festival, and for Juneteenth, because that is what gospel is about. This is what it means to pick up the baton that others have carried regarding civil rights and Christian justice to tell the story of Jesus' love to everyone in word and action, to push back on phobias and prejudice, to insist that injustices end so that something beautiful can begin, to pull the lame to their feet, to seek out the marginalized and estranged, to empower the powerless, to love all people, regardless of gender or race or orientation or identity or economic status, to do your very best in your leg of the race while the baton is in your hand, to inherit the spiritual riches of those who have gone before you, and to make it your own, to practice radical hospitality, to speak to those you've been told not to speak to. This is what it means to offend others in Jesus' name. That is what it means to break Sabbath law, and that's why every great gospel story ends and begins with those words. Amen.